0: Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian-leaning. Keep clean, look cool, have cool
1: stickers to put on stuff. Org. Astounding Stories 07, July 1930 by Various The Terror of Air Level 6, Part 4 We were still at about 10 miles distance from the Great Ring, and the streaking light pencils were speeding earthward at the rate of one a minute now. There was no time to lose. Already there was more destruction on its way than had been previously wrought, several times over. Hart was sighting along a tiny tube that projected into the forward partition, and he manoeuvred the pioneer until she was nose on to the great ring. He pulled a switch, and there came a purring that was entirely new. A row of huge vacuum tubes along the wall, lighted to vivid brilliancy, and a throbbing vibration filled the artificial air of the cabin. He pulled a small lever at the side of the tube, and the vessel rocked to the energy that was released from those vacuum tubes. The thin rod, which had been installed at the pioneer's nose, burst into brilliant flame, orange-tinted luminescence that grew to a sphere of probably ten feet in diameter. Then there was a heavy shock, and the ball of fire left its position, and with inconceivable velocity sprang straight for the side of the great ring. It was a fair hit, and when the weird missile found its mark, it simply vanished, swallowed up in the metal walls of the monster vessel. For a moment we thought nothing was to result, and then we burst into shouts of joy, for a great section of the ring fused into nothingness and was gone. Fully a quarter of the circumference of the ring had disappeared into the vacuum of space. Truly the governments of Earth had developed some terrible weapons of their own. We watched breathless. The green light pencils no longer streaked their paths of death in the direction of our world, which now seemed so remote. The great ring with a vacant space in its rim wobbled uncertainly for a moment as though some terrific upheaval from within was tearing it asunder, and then it lurched directly for the pioneer. We had been observed. But Hart was equal to the occasion, and he shot the pioneer in the direction of earth with such acceleration that we were all flattened into our supports with the same old violence, and then with equal violence we decelerated. The ring was following so closely that it actually rushed many hundreds of miles past us before it was brought to rest. From it there sprang one of the light pencils, and the Pioneer was rocked as by a heavy gale when it rushed past on its harmless way into infinity. The enemy had missed. Meanwhile, Hart was operating another mechanism that was new to the Pioneer, and again he sighted along the tiny tube. This time there was no sound within. No ball of fire without, no visible ray. But when he pressed the release of this second energy, the ring seemed to shrivel and twist. As if gripped by a giant's hand, it reeled and spun, and then no longer in a balance of forces, it commenced its long drop earthward. His job finished and finished well. Hart Jones collapsed. Following his more than three days and four nights of superhuman endeavor, It seemed strange to see Hart slumped white and still over the control pedestal. He, who had energy far in excess of that of any of the rest of us, had worn himself out. Having had no rest or sleep in nearly a hundred hours, the body that housed so wonderful a spirit simply refused to carry on. Tenderly we stretched him on the cabin floor, the pioneer drifting in space the while. The professor, who was likewise something of a physician, listened to his heart drew back his eyelids, and pronounced him in no danger whatever. We slapped his wrists, sprinkled his face and neck with cold water from the drinking supply, and was soon rewarded by his return to consciousness. He smiled weakly, and then fell sound asleep. No war in the universe could have wakened him then, so we lifted him to his feet. Rather, I should say, we guided his practically floating body and strapped him in George's hammock preparing for the homeward journey. Though dangling from the straps in a position that would be vertical were we on earth, he slept like a baby. George took the controls in Hart's place, and the professor and I returned to our accustomed supports. The return trip was considerably slower, as George did not wish to push the Pioneer to its limit, as had been necessary when coming out to meet the enemy, nor was he able to keep control of the ship against a too rapid acceleration. Consequently, the rate of acceleration was much lower, and we were not nearly as uncomfortable as on the outgoing trip. Thus, nearly ten hours were required for the return, and Hart slept through it all. In order to make best use of the small amount of fuel still in the cylinders, George circled the earth five times before we entered the upper limits of the atmosphere. The circles becoming of smaller diameter at each revolution, and the speed of the ship proportionately reduced. An occasional discharge from one of the forward rocket tubes assisted materially in the deceleration. Yet when we slipped into level five, our speed was so great that the temperature of the cabin rose alarmingly due to the friction of the air against the hull of the vessel. It was necessary to use the last remaining ounce of fuel to reduce the velocity to a safe value. A long glide to earth was then our only means of landing, and since we were over the Gulf of Mexico at the time, we had no recourse other than landing in the state of Texas. Passing over Galveston in Level 3, we found that the humble oil fields and the great section of the surrounding country had been the center of one of the enemy's bombardments. All was blackness and ruin for many miles between this point and Houston at houston airport we landed unheralded but welcome the lower levels were once more filled with traffic and one of the southern route transcontinental liners had just made its stop at this point the arrival of the pioneer was thus witnessed by an unusually large crowd and when the news was spread to the city their numbers increased with all the rapidity made possible by the various means of transportation from the city So it was that Hart Jones, after we finally succeeded in awakening him and getting him to his feet, was hailed by a veritable multitude as the greatest hero of all time. The demonstrations became so enthusiastic that police reserves hastily summoned from the city were helpless in their attempts to keep the crowd in order. It was with the greatest difficulty that Hart was finally extricated from the clutches of the mob and conveyed to the new Rice Hotel in Houston where it was necessary to obtain medical attention for him immediately. He was in no condition at the time to receive the richly deserved plaudits of the multitude, and truth to tell, we others from the Pioneer were in much the same shape. To me that night will always be the most terrible of nightmares. My first thought was of my family and when I had been assigned to a room I immediately asked the switchboard operator for a long-distance connection to my home in Rutherford. There was complete silence for a minute, and I jangled the hook impatiently, my head throbbing with a thousand aches and pains, and then to my surprise the voice of the hotel manager greeted me. "'Mr. Makeley,' he said softly, and I thought there was a peculiar ring in his voice. I think you had better not try to get Rutherford this evening. We are sending the house physician to your room at once, and there are orders from Washington, you know. You are to think of nothing at the present but sleep and a long rest. Why, why, I stammered. Can't you see? I must communicate with my family. They must know of my return. I must know if they're safe and well. I'm sorry, sir, apologized the manager. Government orders, you know, and he hung up something in that soft voice brought to me an inkling of the truth an icy hand gripped my heart as i heard a knock at the door and with palsied fingers i turned the key and admitted the professor and a kindly faced elderly gentleman with a small black bag one look at the professor told me the truth i seized his two arms in a grip that made him wince tell me tell me i demanded has anything happened to my family jack said the professor slowly While we were out there watching Hart destroy the enemy vessel, Rutherford was destroyed. It must be that I frightened him with my answering stare, for he backed away from me in apparent fear. I noticed that the doctor was rummaging in his bag. I know I did not speak, did not cry out, for my tongue clove to the roof of my mouth. It seemed I must go mad. The professor still backed away from me. Then... little athlete that he was he sprang directly for my knees in a beautiful football tackle i remember that point clearly and how i admired his agility at the time i remember the glint of a small instrument in the doctor's hand and then all was blackness eight days later they tell me it was i returned to painful consciousness in a hospital bed but let me skip the agony of mind i experienced then suffice it to say that when i was able i set forth for washington hart jones was there and he had sent for me but i took little interest in the going did not even bother to speculate as to the reason for his summons i had devoured the news during my convalescence and now more than two weeks after the destruction of the terror i knew the extent of the damage wrought upon our earth by those deadly green light pencils we had seen issuing from the huge ring up there in the skies. The horror of it all was fresh in my mind, but my own private horror overshadowed all. I was glad that Hart had been so signally honored by the World Peace Board, that he was now the most famous and most popular man in the entire world. He deserved it all and more. But what cared I? I, who had done least of all to help in his great work, that the terror had been found where it buried itself in the sand of the Sahara when falling to earth. What cared I that the discoveries made in the excavating of the huge metal ring were of inestimable value to science? It gave me passing satisfaction to note that all of Hart Jones' theories were borne out by the discoveries, that Oradell and his minions were responsible for this terrible war that the planet they aligned against us was Venus, and that more than a hundred thousand of the Venerians had been carried in that weird engine of destruction which had been brought down by heart. It was interesting to read of the fall of that huge ring, how it was heated to incandescence when it entered our atmosphere at such tremendous velocity, of the tidal waves of concentric billows in the sand that led to its discovery by Egyptian government planes. The broadcast descriptions and the television views of the stunted and twisted venerians, whose bodies were recovered from the partly consumed wreckage, were interesting. But it all left me cold. I had no further interest in life. That the world had escaped an overwhelming disaster was clear, and it gave me a certain pleasure, but for me it might as well have been completely destroyed. Nevertheless, I went to Washington. I felt somehow that I owed it to Hart Jones, the greatest world hero since Lindbergh. I would at least listen to what he had to say. A fast plane carried me, a plane chartered by the government. To me it seemed that it crawled, though it was a sixth level ship, and made the trip in record time. Why I was impatient to reach Washington I do not know, for I was absolutely disinterested in anything that might occur there. It was merely that my nerves were on edge, I suppose, and everything annoyed me. Hart met me at the airport and greeted me like a long-lost brother. He talked incessantly and jumped from one subject to the other with the obvious intention of trying to get my mind off my troubles, until we reached his office in the air traffic building. On his door there was the legend, Director of Research and when we had entered, I observed that the office was furnished with all the luxury that suited his new position. I dropped into a deeply upholstered chair at the side of his mahogany desk, and for the space of several minutes Hart regarded me with concern, speaking not a word. "'Jack, old man,' he finally ventured, "'I can't talk to you of this thing, but it makes me feel very badly to see you take it so hard. There are many things you have to live for, Old Top, and it's to talk about these that I send for you." "'You mean work?' I asked. "'Yes. That is the best thing for us all, in any emergency or under any circumstances whatever. Preston wants you back for one thing, and he authorized me to tell you that the job of office manager is waiting for you at double your former salary.' My eyes missed it at this. Preston was a good old scout. But I could never bear to return to the old surroundings, even in the city. No, heart, I said. I'd rather be away from New York and from that part of the country. Associations, you know. I understand, he replied. And that is just what I had hoped you would decide, because I have a job for you in the air service. A good one, too. You know, there's much reconstruction work to be done on earth. More than forty cities and towns have been wiped out of existence, and these must be rebuilt. That will occupy the minds and energies of thousands who have been bereaved, as you have. But in the air service we have a program that I believe will be more to your liking. The Log of the Terror, in Oradell's handwriting, was found intact, as were a number of manuscripts pertaining to plans of the Venarians. These misshapen creatures were quite evidently educated by Oradell to a hatred of our world. We have reason to believe that other attacks may follow, for they were obviously intending to migrate here in millions, and according to records found aboard the Terra, they are of advanced scientific accomplishment. We may expect them to construct other vessels similar to the Terra, and to come here again. We must be prepared to fight them off, to carry the war to their own planet if necessary. My work is to organize a world fleet of spaceships for this purpose. And I'd like you to help me in this. The work will take you all over the world and will keep you too busy to think about things." It was just like Hart, and I thanked him wordlessly, but from the bottom of my heart. Yes, I would accept his generous offer. Though I was no engineer, I had a knowledge of scientific subjects a little above the average, and I could follow instructions. By George, it was the very thing. Suddenly, I grew enthusiastic. There was the sound of voices in the outer office, and Hart's secretary entered to announce the arrival of George Boehm and Professor Lindquist. This was great. Chubby George, red-faced and smiling as ever, embraced me with one short arm and pounded me on the back with his other fist in his jovial, joking manner. It was good to have friends like these. The professor held forth his hand timidly. He was thinking of that tackle and the half Nelson he had used on me while the doctor slipped that needle into my arm back there in Houston. "'Don't remove your glasses, Professor,' I laughed. "'I'm not going to hit you. That was a swell tackle of yours, and you did me a big service down there in the Rice Hotel.' He beamed with pleasure and gripped my hand mightily for such a little fellow. George was whispering to Hart, and I could see that they were greatly excited over something. "'Jack!' "'said Hart, when the professor and I finished talking things over. "'George here wants you to take a little trip over to Philly with him. "'He has something there he wants to show you.' "'I looked from one to the other for signs of a hoax. "'These two, under normal circumstances, were always up to something. "'But what I saw in their expressions convinced me that I had better go. "'And somehow there rose in my breast a forlorn hope. "'All right,' I agreed. "'Let's go.' Once more we four took off together, this time in a speedy little first-level cabin plane of Hart's design, piloted by the irrepressible George. I was brimming with questions, but George kept up such a running fire of small talk that I was unable to get in a single word throughout the short trip to the Quaker city. It was quite evident that something was in the wind. Instead of landing at the airport, George swung across the city and dropped to the roof landing space of a large building which I recognized as the Germantown Hospital. We had no sooner landed when I was rushed from the plane to the penthouse over the elevator shafts. We were soon on the main floor, and George went immediately to the desk at the receiving office, where he engaged in earnest conversation with the nurse in charge. What are you doing, committing me?' I asked half-joking only, for from the mysterious expression of my friends' faces I was not sure what to expect. "'No,' laughed Hart. George learned of the existence of a patient here who may turn out to be a very good friend of yours. I turned this over in my mind, which did not yet function quite normally. A friend? Why, I had very few that could really be termed good friends outside of those that accompanied me. It could mean but one thing. Possibly one of my children, or even my dear wife, might have escaped somehow. I followed in a daze as a white-capped and gowned nurse led us along the corridor and into a ward where there were dozens of high white beds. Some of the patients were swathed in bandages. Some sat up in their beds, reading or just staring. Others lay inert and pale. The reek of iodoform pervaded the large room. We stopped at the bedside of one of the staring patients, a young woman who looked unseeingly at our party. "'Great heavens! It was Marie!' A physician stood at the other side of her bed, finger on her pulse. The others drew back as I approached her side, raised her free hand to my lips, and spoke to her. "'Marie, dear,' I asked gently. "'forcing the lump from my throat as best I could. "'Don't you know me? "'It's Jack, honey.' "'The fixed stare of the great blue eyes shifted in my direction. "'It seemed that they looked through and past me "'into some terrible realm where only horror held sway. "'She drew her hand from my grasp "'and passed it before those staring, unnatural eyes. "'There was an audible gulp from George. "'But the doctor smiled encouragement to me. "'I tried once more. "'Marie,' I said. "'Where are Jim and Jackie?' The hand fluttered to her lap where it lay, blue-veined and pitifully thin. The stare focused on me, seemed to concentrate, and then the film was gone from the eyes, and she saw. She knew me. "'Oh, Jack!' she wailed. "'I've been away. Don't you know where they are?' My heart nearly stopped at this, but I sat on the edge of the bed and took her in my arms, looking at the doctor for approval. He nodded his head brightly and beckoned to the nurse. "'Bring the children,' I heard him whisper. "'My cup was full, but I must be calm for Marie's sake.' She had closed her eyes now, and great tears coursed down her waxen cheeks. Her body shook with sobs. "'She'll recover?' I asked the doctor. "'You bet. Just an aggravated case of amnesia. Hasn't eaten. Didn't even know her children. Cured now.' but she'll need a few weeks to build up," he snapped shut the lid of his watch. Those succinct sentences were the finest I had ever heard. Marie clung to me like an infant to its mother. Her sobs gradually ceased, and she looked into my eyes. Little Jim and Jack had come in and were clamoring for recognition. "'Oh, Jack,' Marie whispered. "'I'm so happy!' She relinquished me and turned her attention to the children. I saw that my friends had left, and that an orderly was placing screens about us, so I'll close the screen on the remainder of this most happy reunion. It was several days before I had the complete story. Being lonesome during my absence when we were preparing for the voyage into space, and not knowing just when I would return, Marie had packed a grip and taken the train for Philadelphia, deciding to spend a few days with her Aunt Margaret or at least to remain there, with the children, until I returned. She had boarded the train at Manhattan Transfer, at about the time we reached the location of the Terror, and the train was just pulling out of the station when there came the first of the new attacks of the enemy. She thought that the pillar of fire rose from the approximate location of Rutherford, but was not sure until they reached Newark, when the news was spread throughout the train by passengers who boarded it there. She worried and cried over the loss of our little home, and had worked herself into a state of extreme nervousness and near hysteria by the time they reached New Brunswick. Then, as the long train left New Brunswick, there was another attack, this one on the town they had just left. The last two cars of the train were blown from the track by the initial concussion, and the remainder of the train brought to a grinding, jerking stop that threw the passengers into a panic. Already hysterical, Marie was in no condition to bear up under the shock, and the loss of memory followed. Jack and Jim clung to her, of course, and were taken to the Germantown hospital with her when the wreck victims were transferred to that point. She had no identification on her person, and it was by sheerest luck that George, who was visiting a friend in the same hospital, chanced to see her, and thought he recognized her. That was all of it but to me it was more than enough. From the depths of despondency I rose to the peaks of elation. It was true that we would have to establish a new home, but this would be a joy as never before. Those I had given up as lost were restored to me, and I was content. Hart would have to make some changes in the duties of that new job. The world travel was out of the picture. I had had my fill of adventure. And besides, The hot spell was over. End of the terror of air level six. Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger.
0: Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide John Chadwick as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives, of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon and there you can also sign up as a patron which brings you bonus content plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash InnsmouthBC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to
1: People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following
0: any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show now how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access
1: to asking us questions, suggesting topics,
0: even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you
1: can get on the show, too. It's The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. You.